don't know about you, but since COVID started and kind of through, uh, through now, I think all of us have kind of gotten in more of a habit of binge watching things, right? Anybody else? Am I the only one? Okay, that's fine. Um, <laughs> I doubt that. I doubt that. Um, but one of those shows that I never got around to watching, and I finally did as it was, I don't know, more acceptable or not, but as more people were doing that kind of thing, was The Good Place. Um, it's a show, if you've not seen it, uh, it's about the main character whose name is Eleanor. And what happens is she opens her eyes, and she's in an office. And so uh, a gentleman comes to the door and says, Eleanor, come on in. His name's Michael. And as she goes into the office, he is told by Michael that she is dead and that she is in the good place. Now, of course, it's a, fiction, it's a fictional account of, of what the afterlife might be and, and so forth. But during the course of it, Eleanor is a little confused because she didn't feel like she lived the best life anyway and, and that kind of thing. But Michael tells her that she is, in fact, in the good place. And in this reality, the way it works is, if you haven't seen the show, everything you do has a point value to it. So let's say you help somebody carry their groceries to their door or um, whatever it might be. You know, you, you leave a note if you hit somebody with your car or whatever it is. That has a positive point value, and that's added to your tally, right? And if you do something that is not on the good scale, then you have a negative point value. And what happens is when you die, they add it all up, and if you have a total above a certain amount, you go to the good place. And if you have a total under a certain number, well, obviously you go to the bad place, and it's demons torturing you for eternity or whatever. But as we go through the story, and I'm not going to spoil it for you because that's a, that's a bad thing. But as they're talking, Eleanor and Michael, in the, uh, that first episode, there's a picture on the wall. And it's just a, some random guy. And she asks who that is. And Michael says, oh, that's the one person that figured it out. Figured out how the afterlife worked. He's, he, you know, it wasn't the Muslims, it wasn't the Christians, it wasn't the Catholics, it wasn't the Jews. It was this one guy. He just came, he figured out the point total system. And he's kind of revered because, you know, they're surprised that somebody was able to figure it out. But as we find out later in the show, the, that guy lived a miserable life because he felt like there were all these rules he had to follow. If he stepped on a bug, he had to have a funeral for it. He had to give money to the charity that supported that bug. He had to only eat certain types of vegetables that didn't take too much water to grow. Uh, there was a kid in the neighborhood that bullied him because he didn't want to upset this kid. He lived a horrible life, and we find out later, he didn't even make it. So it's, it would be exhausting, it seems to me, but I feel like that many of us, maybe not here, but many of us, many people have that opinion today. Well, I'm sure I'm good enough. I'm sure God will let me in heaven, right? Or, you know, my, my, my grandmother went to this church, and so I'm going to heaven someday, which I heard an excellent quote about that. I've said that, I've said for many years, you know, it doesn't matter what family members went to church. It doesn't count for you. But I heard somebody vocalize it even better than that. They said, Christianity is not genetic. I like that a lot because <laughs> it kind of it kind of sums that up. It doesn't matter that your parents did. My grandfather was a free will Baptist preacher. It doesn't make me a Christian. Okay, so 
all of us, and, and that just kind of summed it up. But I think a lot of people do that. And, and normally, if you've seen me preach before, you know I almost always give a gospel at the end. I feel like today we ought to do it at the, at the beginning, because why not? Because the rest of the day, we're going to, the rest of the sermon, we're going to be talking about Christians. So if you are not one, there is no possible way to earn your way to heaven. You can't be good enough. You can't earn enough points for that. But Jesus came to earth. He, he came to earth as a baby born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died a very real death on a cross, and his blood paid the penalty for our sin. And he didn't stay in that grave. He arose three days later, so we don't have to fear death. So if you are in this room or if you're joining us at, at Church Online and you don't know Christ as Savior, today is a great day for that. It is a great day. Please don't leave this room without talking to one of us today if you don't know if you're saved or not. If you're online, calvaryelco.org slash decision is a, is a great way to get a hold of us. If you make a decision for Christ, we want to know about it. Also, if you have any questions about making a decision for Christ, we want to know that too. But please don't leave today. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. You're not guaranteed the next five minutes. Please get that right today if you haven't been saved. But today, in honor of that show, we are going to talk about the good life. And today we're going to focus on a couple of aspects. If our works don't get us to heaven, then what is the point of living a good life? And on top of that, what does that good life look like? So we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3, as I said, starting in verse 8. 1 Peter 3, starting in verse 8. Read with me. Finally, all of you should be of one mind. Sympathize with each other. Love each other as brothers and sisters. Be tenderhearted and keep a humble attitude. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. That is what God has called you to do, and he will grant you his blessing. For the scriptures say, if you want to enjoy life and see many happy days... Keep your tongue from speaking evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn away from evil and do good. Search for peace and work to maintain it. The eyes of the Lord watch over those who do right, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the Lord turns his face against those who do evil. Now, who will want to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. And if someone asks you about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. Let's pray together. Father, God, bless this day. Lord, Holy Spirit, speak through me and have a, help, us, help your people to have open hearts to hear, Lord. And Lord, just uh, we give you all glory for all things. In Jesus' name, amen. So a little introduction to 1 Peter. Now, 1 Peter is not who the book, Peter is not who the book is written to, it's who it's written by. It's written by Simon Peter, uh, one of the disciples along with his brother Andrew. Uh, he was part of Jesus' inner circle, as it were, along with James and John. If you're not if you're not a common if you're not a churchgoer, maybe you're a new Christian or something like that, you probably know the story of Peter from when Jesus was walking on the water and and 
Peter comes out and walks with him on the water and then takes his eyes off Jesus, looks down, sees the raging sea, and starts to sink, right? Um, another way you may know him is when uh, Christ was on trial and being you know, ready to be crucified, Peter's the one that denied him three times before the rooster crowed. So um, Peter was brash, he was outspoken, uh, he was compulsive, he, he didn't hold his, you know, hold his tongue. But in spite of that, the book of 1 Peter was written as a letter of encouragement for the scattered Christians that either were being or were going to be persecuted by the Roman Empire. So it's a book of encouragement. The first couple of chapters of Peter speak to Christ's sacrifice, and because of that sacrifice, some basic instructions about how to live. And then when we turn the corner to chapter 3, at first there's instructions for wives and husbands, and then this portion that we're reading today is to all Christians. And so when you see the word finally, and I've said this before if you've heard, if, if you've heard me speak, if you see finally or therefore or as it was or anything like that, go back a few verses and see what they were talking about. So earlier in this chapter, he was giving instructions about wives and husbands, and now he's talking to all Christians. So as I mentioned, what are the aspects of living a good life? Well, number one, be of one mind. Be of one mind. Verse 8, finally, all of you should be of one mind. The Greek word there is homophro, which is harmonious, united in spirit, and it's the only time this word is used in the New Testament. Now, just a reminder, this is written to Christians, okay? It's not talking about robotic. It's not talking about having a hive mind. It's not talking about... uh, always thinking the same, you know, cookie-cutter people. It's not talking about uniformity as much as it's talking about unity. We we as Christians are to have one mind, to be unified. Uh, John 17, starting at verse 21, Christ is praying to, to God the Father. And he says, I pray that they, Christians, will be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the whole world will believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me so they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Catch all that? So Christ is basically saying, God, the Father, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all three God, all three separate, you know, the the great mystery, right? But as I, God the Son, am one with you, God the Father, may they be one with each other. That's a tall order, right? But it's what we're called upon to do. It's It's in the Word of God. Uh, Philippians 1.27, Paul writes, Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Philippians 2.2, 2, then, then, then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other. Then in Romans 12.16, live in harmony with each other. I, Howard Marshall, said, The ideal Christian community is one which produces between people who have no blood ties the same bonds of affection as are expected between brothers and sisters. So basically saying, even if you're not family, 
let there be bonds between you that are family. We're going to talk about that later because we actually are family, but we'll get to that. Now, does that mean we always agree? No. <laughs> no, it doesn't mean we agree. But what it mean, does mean that while we might disagree about how something is done, we ought not disagree about what needs to be done and why it needs to be done. For instance, around here we teach three circles as a way to give the gospel. There are many ways of giving the gospel. There's the Romans Road. There's uh, asking some, you know, somebody if you can pray for them when you're at a, at a restaurant. There's walk across the room. There's, there's all these different methods of giving the gospel. But it's not, the point is not which one of those is right. The point is we should give the gospel. And why? Because people need to be saved. Warren Wiersbe tells a story of, there was a man who criticized D.L. Moody, one of the champions of the faith. They, they questioned his method of evangelism. And Moody said, well, I'm always ready for improvement. What are your methods? And the guy was like, I don't have any methods. And he was like, then I'll stick with my own. So if you don't have a better suggestion, then ought not say it. So in the words of Augustine, you've probably heard this before, on essentials, unity on non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. The essentials, what are the essentials? It's the tenets of the faith that are not negotiable. It's the trinity. It's uh, the godhood of, of Jesus Christ. It's the virgin birth. Those kinds of things that can't be argued as far as tenets of the faith. Those we should have unity on. On non-essentials, liberty. There's freedom in some of those things. A lot of the things in, in the end times and the rapture and things like that. In all things, though, charity, love, right? We don't hate somebody because they believe something different than us, okay? So number one, be of one mind. Number two, be sympathetic. Verse eight, finally, all of you should be of one mind, sympathize with each other, or the New King James says, have compassion with one another. That Greek word is sympathis, which also means, it can mean understanding, and it's the only time that word is used in the New Testament as well. The meaning here is more than just, I feel sorry for you. It's, I feel sorry for you, how can I help? It's not just a feeling. It's a feeling with legs. Let's, let's call it that. It's not enough to just say, I understand, I feel, compa- you know, I feel for you. What can I do to help that? Romans 12, 15 says, be happy with those who are happy and weep with those who weep. A little bit of Bible school time. If you've been in Sunday school or any, any of those kinds of things, what's the shortest verse in the Bible? Somebody call it out. Jesus wept. Actually, in the New Living Translation, it's three words. Then Jesus wept. They had to be different. Um, but yes, that is correct. But oftentimes, and, and a lot of people know that, but they don't know where it comes from. It comes from the story of Lazarus. Lazarus was sick, and Mary and Martha called upon Jesus, summoned him to come and help Lazarus. And Jesus said, He's not going to die from this, guys. You know, it's, you know, he's going to be okay. So he stayed where he was for two days. When he finally went to Bethany, where Lazarus was, Lazarus has been dead for four days. Dead. Mary and Martha are, are grief-stricken, and they're like, if you had been here, this wouldn't have happened. And Jesus says, he's not going to stay dead. He, you know, basically, he's trying to tell them that, you know, I'm going to take care of this, but they're not hearing it. And Jesus becomes, depending on your translation, is troubled or angry or because he sees all of these people just weeping and weeping and weeping. And so finally, overcome with this, Jesus asks, where is Lazarus? Where's the body? And they say, we'll take you to it. And then Jesus wept. 
Why? Is it because he didn't believe he was going to be able to raise Lazarus out of the grave that all these people that are crying were right? No. He had sympathy for these people. He knew their hurt. He understood their hurt. He was human, after all. And because he saw all of that, even though he knew that Lazarus was coming out of that grave because he was going to make it happen, he still wept with them. And with tears in his eyes, he said, come on, Lazarus. And Lazarus came out. So he gave legs to his sympathy. So number two, be sympathetic. Number three, be loving. Finally, all of you should be of one mind, sympathize with each other, love each other as brothers and sisters. You're probably familiar with this Greek word, Philadelphos, Philadelphia, having brotherly love. It's, again, it's the only time this word is used in the New Testament, too. And we're going to come back to why that is here in a minute. But Philadelphia, having brotherly love. We as Christians are children of God. As we mentioned earlier, having one mind is having a mind that is, it's like a family tie without being in family. But the truth is, if you're a Christian today, you are adopted by God the Father. You are a child of God. That's why we say that. It's adoption. It is being part of God's family. And as such, we ought to love each other. As brothers and sisters, we ought to have that love, that that thing in common. And I understand today that for many people, and maybe somebody here, family is not always a a positive word. It is sometimes a hurtful word. But please understand that God the Father is not a failed human father. God the Father is the perfect father. He loves us unconditionally. He sent his only son to die for us. He did not have to do that. He loves us enough to do that. So please understand that we are brothers and sisters. And if if you're a Christian today, I am your brother. If you are a Christian today, you're my brother or sister. We should love each other as such. Romans 12:10. Love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. 1 Thessalonians 4:9. But we don't need to write to you about the importance of loving each other, Paul said. For God himself has taught you to love one another. And how did he teach us that? He exemplified it. 1 Peter 1.22, you were cleansed from your sins when you obeyed the truth. So now you must show sincere love to each other as brothers and sisters. In other words, when you were saved, you, you, you were cleansing your sins, and now you should show love to your fellow brothers and sisters. Love each other deeply with all your heart. The writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 13.1, keep on loving each other as brothers and sisters. So number three, be loving. Number four, be tenderhearted. It's not a word we use much these days, but tenderhearted or compassionate is another way to say that. Finally, all of you should be of one mind, sympathize with each other, love each other as brothers and sisters, and be tenderhearted. New American Standard Bible actually has that word kind-hearted is another way to say that. This is an interesting one. Greek is the Greek word here is esplanknos. Okay? It means compassionate. It's used one other time by Paul in Ephesians 4:32. We're going to talk about that verse here in a minute. This word is interesting. It's a compound word, which means that there were two parts of the word put together. Eu, EU means in the Greek means good. And splanknon, the rest of that word, literally means the guts. 
the, the bowels, the viscera. The reason why is, if it's Valentine's Day, what are we putting on a Valentine's card? A heart, right? Because the heart in our culture is the seat of emotion. It's the seat of love. It's where that comes from. In the ancient world, it was the, the guts. It was lower, let's say. This is the seat of the emotion. So literally, this word is meaning good feelings, okay? We're to have good feelings for one another. Um, as I mentioned, Ephesians 4.32, Instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God, through Christ, has forgiven you. It's important to remember this kind of concept, this tender-heartedness, was not a trait that the Roman people, or especially the Roman Empire, saw as favorable. Okay, It was considered weak. But then Christianity happened. And the Christian faith proclaimed a new point of view that spread. So while it was not considered acceptable in the Roman world, in the Christian world, it was essential being tender-hearted, being, being compassionate to each other. So number four, be tender-hearted. Number five, be humble. Finally, all of you should be of one mind, sympathize with each other, love each other as brothers and sisters, be tender-hearted, and keep a humble attitude. Or the New King James translates that courteous. That Greek, work is, Greek word is tapinophron, uh, which is, again, humble, but again, it's the only time it's used in the New Testament. So being humble-minded is a uniquely Christian sentiment. It's the opposite of pride, the opposite of seeking gratification. And whereas being tender-hearted in the Roman world was not considered to be an admirable trait, I'd submit to you that being humble isn't a great trait today, if you think about it. How else would our culture have come up with the word humble brag? When you're on social media and somebody is saying, look at this wonderful thing that happened to me, hashtag blessed. When we have things like influencers, people that are literally using their popularity to sell products. When you use, when, there's actually a term out there, they're famous for being famous. That's our culture. That's, that's, that's what we're turning into here. It's so important to keep our pride in check and to think of others above ourselves in spite of all that. Philippians 2, 3, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. In the book of Acts, Paul said, I have done the Lord's work humbly and with many tears. I have endured the trials that came to me from the plots of the Jews. And Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, 2, always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowances for each other's faults because of your love. We ought to be thinking of others more than ourselves, being humble. Now, these five that I've mentioned, every one of them except for um, tenderhearted, it's the only time that word has been used in the New Testament in that way. And the reason why is, it's not that Peter knew the words that were going to be used to write the rest of the New Testament. What, it's, what it means, though, is that he chose unique words to point out the fact that these are important traits to have. So he was pointing out the importance by the words that he used. So be humble is number five. Number six, I was trying to keep the be thing happening here. Be non-retaliatory. It's a little wordy. I apologize. But non-retaliatory. Starting in verse nine, don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. 
That is what God has called you to do, and he will grant you his blessing. For the scriptures say, this is quoted from Psalm 34, Psalm of David, if you want to enjoy life and see many happy days, skip down to 11, turn away from evil and do good. Search for peace and work to maintain it. Now, once again, keep the audience in mind. Whenever you're reading a passage of Scripture, it's important to keep who who it was written to as part of your thought process. So again, Peter is writing this to Christians who were scattered and who were about to or were in the process of being persecuted by Rome. And he's telling them, don't get back at people if they try to hurt you. Another tall order but that's what he's telling them to do. He's saying, don't try to get back at them if they try to hurt you. And then we see in verse 9, pay them back with a blessing, and then he will grant you his blessing. So literally, if we speak well of those who hurt us, we are like Christ, and God will bless us for it. It's what God has called us as Christians to do. Imagine with me after Christ has been crucified and he's taken down off the cross and he's buried and three days later he comes out of the grave and he appears to the disciples. And what if he was telling the disciples, you know, that one guard who spit at me, oh, and that guy that nailed me to the cross, oh, and, and, and just started naming people, pe- back, back, you know, pe- all these people that hurt him and killed him and all these different things. Would his sacrifice have been as acceptable? I wonder. You didn't see that from Christ, right? You didn't see him complaining and, 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 and calling out all of these. Because, let's face it, the people that, that hung him on that cross were the same people he was dying for. He was dying for the people that killed him. And we're, we're included. We're just as guilty, right? But he, wasn't, he, didn't, he didn't call them out for that. Proverbs 17, 13. If you repay good with evil... Evil will never leave your house. We ought to all have that sign above our door, right? Let me read that again. If you repay good with evil, evil will never leave your house. Proverbs 20, 22. Don't say, I will get even for this wrong. Wait for the Lord to handle the matter. Because number one, the Lord is better equipped, and the Lord will do it with righteousness. So let God handle it, okay? I heard somebody say this week, in another podcast, I listen to a lot of podcasts. Um, they said, "When we are, when we're saved, we're not only saved from the sins we commit, but we're saved from the sins that other people commit at us." I thought that was a really good word. First Thessalonians five fifteen: See that no one pays back evil for evil, but always try to do good to each other and to all people. So number six, be non-retaliatory. Number seven, you knew we were getting here, be mindful of your tongue. Going back to verse 10 where we skipped, keep your tongue from speaking evil and your lips from telling lies. That's the Greek word glosa, which is basically tongue. Your tongue associated with language or with speaking. Um, It could be said that the other six aspects that we've talked about, being of one mind, sympathetic, loving, tenderhearted, humble, and non-retaliatory, they are how... We control our tongue, right? All of those things. And as we mentioned before, you don't, when you're reading the scripture, it's important to, to remember the, the, the audience, but also remember who's writing it. Peter was a hothead. Peter did not 
mince words a lot of times. Go through the Gospels. He often said exactly what he was thinking at the worst possible time. And he's telling people here, control your tongue. Don't retaliate against people. Don't, don't speak ill like that. So if Peter's, you know, I'm sure there's a lesson that Peter had to continually work on. But he's telling us we should too. Psalm 141.3, take control of what I say, O Lord, and guard my lips. That would be a great prayer for a lot of us to pray a lot of times during the day, right? Take control of what I say, O Lord, and guard my lips. James, that brother of Jesus in verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 26 said, If you claim to be religious, but don't control your tongue, you are fooling yourself, and your religion is worthless. And then in chapter 3, he's talking about here in this passage where a horse is turned by a small, uh, small bit in his mouth, and a, and a boat is turned by a small rudder. So he continues in verse 5 of chapter 3, In the same way, The tongue is a small thing that makes grand speeches, but in a tiny spark can set a great forest on fire. And among all the parts of the body, the tongue is a flame of fire. It is is a whole world of wickedness, corrupting your entire body. It can set your whole life on fire, for it is set on fire by hell itself. People can tame all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and fish, but no one can tame the tongue. It is restless and evil, full of deadly poison. It's a lot, right? The fact is, when a cross word or, a, or an angry word or a hurtful word is, is, is said, it can't be unsaid. It can't be taken back. It can be, you can be, for, you know, people, can, you can be forgiven and you can apologize, but once it's out there, you said it, Right? It's so important to be on the front end of that, to control what you say before you say it so you don't have to take it back later. So number seven, be mindful of your tongue. So why should we live the good life? We've been talking about how, what the good life looks like, but why should we live a good life? We're going to briefly talk about the rest of the passage. Starting in verse 12, the eyes of the Lord watch over those who do right. And his ears are open to their prayers. But the Lord turns his face against those who do evil. So right away, there's great motivation to do what God has called us to do. In order to have a right relationship with God, we ought to live our lives the way that he wants us to live them. We don't want anything separating us from the power of God. We don't want anything hindering that relationship. If there's sin in our lives, we need to confess that and and make sure that 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 communication with God and that, and that connection to God is, is strong. Now that said, are we going to sin? Yeah, right? All of us sin. I sin, you sin. But we don't want to remain in our sin. When you're, when you're saved, the Holy Spirit starts working on you, starts conforming you to, to the way that, that Christ wants you, you know, God wants you to be. And it's a continuous process until you are in heaven. It's a continuous process. And being getting saved is not a one-time act. It says in the scripture all the time, following Jesus. So if Jesus is going that way, and I'm not going that way, I need to course correct. That's what this is talking about. We need to course correct. We need to do whatever it takes to continue following Christ in the way we ought. Verse 13, now who will want to harm you if you're eager to do good? 
But even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry or be afraid of their threats. Instead, you must worship Christ as Lord of your life. So here Peter is encouraging his readers to do what's right, even in the face of suffering. Can I get a witness? It's not if trials are coming, it's when, right? It's not if, it's when. And it's how we deal with it when. We can't let our guard down, even in the face of adversity. As followers of Christ, we are blessed indeed. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the same Holy Spirit that was, that was in, the Old, in the New Testament. We have the same Holy Spirit today, that guide, that comfort. And let's face it, what are they going to do to a body that's temporary anyway? Whatever is done against us, every bit of it is temporary. If you live to be 150, it's a blip compared to eternity. What can man do to me? Verse 15, and if someone asks you about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear. Then if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. That word explain is the Greek word apologian, which you've probably heard from the word apology, but also from the word apologetics, which is basically a word that says I'm ready to defend the faith against someone who argues against it or is, you know, however that that comes about. I am ready to give a defense, uh, ready to explain it. But again, what does it say? In a gentle and respectful way. If someone gets in your face and tells you that God isn't real, don't, don't retaliate in the same way. Do it gently. You know, you know the truth. So do it gently. So someone asks you, why do you have a smile on your face knowing what's going on with you? Have you ever heard of an elevator pitch? It's where you have, if, you're, if you get on an elevator with somebody and you're trying to sell them something, you have two minutes to tell them before they get to their floor what's going on. You should have an elevator pitch with your testimony. I was saved on July 5th, 1981 at my mother's bedside in Ashland, Kentucky. I was baptized about a year later. I have not always lived the Uh, the way God wants me to, but God saved me that day. Jesus Christ died for me, and he can do the same for you. Elevator pitch. You should be ready to tell somebody, this is why my life looks like this. And it doesn't always look like this. I don't always smile in adversity. I'm not always sympathetic. I don't always love everybody like I should. But if I confess and I'm forgiven, you ought to have a way to tell people Quickly, what? Why? Why, do you, why are you smiling? Jesus did this for me. Jesus died for me. I'm saved. I know that I know that I know where I'll be if I die right now. And if you don't, again, please talk to us before you leave. The good life: be of one mind, be sympathetic, be loving, be tender-hearted, be humble, be non-retaliatory. Be mindful of your tongue. And why do we live a good life? Not because it gets us to heaven, but because Jesus saved us. He died for us, and it's how he wants us to live. And so we live to honor him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for all you do. We thank you for loving us. And we thank you that you are so good. 
and you just want us to live the best life we can. And Lord, I pray that as we go today, Lord, if, if there's anybody that's heard this and, and has not accepted Christ as their Savior, may they begin their eternal life today. Today is a great day. Lord, I pray that, that you'll honor uh, the reading of your word and the delivery of it, Lord. And Lord, just help, help us to soak that in throughout our week this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.